it's a beautiful lead-in from last week. If you guys were with us last week, we were in Hebrews 7, and we were talking about how Jesus is our perfect reconciliation, and just how he really does bring us into a right place with God. We talked last week about how we struggle with that because we, we want God's peace. We want God's righteousness made real in our lives, but we don't really know how to go about getting it. Uh, in fact, we often, as we saw last week, we, we pit the two against one another. Now, we think peace comes at the expense of righteousness or righteousness comes at the expense of peace. And Jesus kind of leaves us with the question saying, I have both. So rather than what you're trying to do to obtain it, would you lay it down to be with me? And I thought that that hit really hard for the formerly Jewish audience that, you know, the author of Hebrews is writing to because they're, they're used to having to always work to get God's peace or God's righteousness. And Jesus says, I have both. Would you just let go and let me bring this to you? And then, as I started to prepare for this week, I realized, nah, the, the author's not quite done hitting hard home with this, with this audience he has. And then reading myself into it, I'm like, okay, I, I understand where, where we kind of fit in. But the author just keeps going on and on about this whole priesthood picture. And last week, while we were seeing how Jesus was greater than the reconciliation the law brought, today we're going to see he's greater than the promise that the law brought. Because as last week we saw how Jesus is a perfect reconciliation, the author is going to build on that today to show us, look, he's an eternal reconciliation and he is a present reconciliation. This, this language in scripture that what Jesus has done is good for us right now, today, in whatever moment we find ourselves, but then also forever. It, it's not a, a future promise that we're, man, hope Hopefully that comes true at some point. It's not something that just took place in the past, like, God, thank you for how you moved then. I can take it from here. It is a present and eternal reconciliation. And what it does is it brings us into God's presence both now and forever. A beautiful picture, man, of what Jesus has done. So beginning in Hebrews chapter 7, we got the last couple of verses that I left off from last week. So we're going to start with 23, and then we're going to go all the way through chapter 8. I'll read verse 22. I just love it in context. It says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's a pretty good starting place this morning. 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. We have one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he, so this is speaking of Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Lord, we are grateful this morning that you are our priest in this vein. God, we also confess to you this morning, we don't really fully understand all that this looks like, Lord, and and I would be in that boat as well. Um, We don't have a lot of the Old Testament Jewish background that this audience, that this author was writing to would have so very easily understood and it would have been profoundly moving to them, Lord, to encourage them where they were at. But Father, just as we've seen the past few weeks, we see in ourselves some of the exact same struggles that the early church was having. And so Father, we we pray, we beg you this morning, open our ears and open our eyes to see what this encouragement was, Father, to be reminded of who you are and who that has made us. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing that we should kind of notice as we move through the text, there's a lot of eternal language going on here. Okay, and the author is showing us that Jesus, he's not just a perfect reconciliation, like he did a good thing one time. Jesus is an eternal reconciliation. If you look down at verses 23 and 24, you see the Old Testament priests are described as being prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus, on the flip side, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues. Authors saying essentially there's no expiration date on Jesus' priesthood. Right? The Old Testament priests, when they completed something on your behalf, it was only good until the next time that either they or you screwed up. At this point, though, we see, no, Jesus, there's nothing that puts an end date or an expiration date or a timeline on his, his priesthood. He is always eternally able 
to reconcile us. Verse 25 tells us because his reconciliation is eternal, it's also complete. I love the phrase that says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he always lives eternal to make intercession for them. That phrase, save to the uttermost, has a dual meaning in there. It, it, it's Saved to the othermost in that there's no sin or no brokenness that Jesus can't save. Like it can literally save anything. But it also, saved to the uttermost speaks to the complete person, right? That not only is there no sin or no brokenness Jesus can't overcome, but every single part of who we are, down to, you know, the little atoms and molecules swirling around in there somewhere, everything is able to be made right with God through Jesus. He can save to the uttermost. But we also point out another difference, that Jesus is not only eternally complete, he's eternally perfect, tying back into last week. Verse 26 tells us we have this kind of a high priest, one who's holy, one who's innocent, unstained. He's separated from sin. He's exalted above the heavens. And the author kind of says this implying and your Old Testament priests weren't, right? Like, like Jesus is these things all the time. Your priests may have had that for a moment here or there, and they may have aspired to be like that, but Jesus is this all the time. Jesus didn't have to offer up daily sacrifices for himself, we're told in verse 27, because in verse 27 and 28, he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. So because he's the eternally complete sacrifice, verse 28, he is a son who has been made perfect forever. And we have to think for a second real quick. If you're sitting here with a Jewish understanding of what it is to be made right with God, this sounds too good to be true. Because they're thinking back to their whole priest system where, well, this was good for today, but then tomorrow we're going to have to do this whole thing all over again. And hopefully the priests kept themselves pure and they're good to offer my sacrifice. Like, to be told that what Jesus can do is eternal, that it happened once and it covers everything, that, that Jesus is complete, like it wasn't just one sacrifice for one sin, but that he covers everything, this sounds too good to be true. For the Jewish audience, or these, these formerly Jews in the audience. And so God tacks on one more little piece here in the author of Hebrews. Verse 28 says that Jesus, he's eternally complete, eternally perfect, eternally appointed. That verb, appointed, in verse 28, that the law, the oath, the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As it comes from the verb kahisthami, and it means to set something over something else. So kind of picture in your heads, something breaks in your home. I, I don't want to put an example on there because then you're going to go home and it's going to break on you. But let's just say it's something really expensive. And uh, you don't have the money to be able to fix everything all at that one time. So you put a temporary fix on it. And you say, you know what, I'm, I know I'm kind of just kicking the problem down the road. This is going to be good enough for now. You know in the back of your head something better, something more perfect is going to have to come to eventually fix this big issue, right? Like this, this patch on it is good and it's perfect and it accomplishes what it needs to for the moment. But it's not as good as it could be. 
when the repair guy or when, you know, you've watched a couple of YouTube videos and you're feeling adventurous and have time to go do it yourself, when you come in with that more permanent fix, right, you are, you are setting that up as better than what you originally had. Like, you're saying, this is the real deal. Like, that helped me for a season, but this is good forever. That's the kind of imagery that the author of Hebrews is using when he talks about how God is telling this Jewish audience, look, I know it sounds too good to be true, but all you guys know is just this thing over here that was not intended to be the long-term plan, right? Jesus is not phase two or plan B. Or, or the next step in something that God says, okay, we're getting a little bit closer. No, the author of Hebrews is showing his audience, look, Jesus is this permanent, perfect, eternal fix for the brokenness that's within you. you that temporary solution in the law that you think is, is the best thing out there, there is something greater. The author is really trying to show him, look, I know you're struggling to get this. Jesus is God's eternally complete, eternally perfect, eternally appointed reconciliation. And I love how as he, he lays this point at the end of chapter 7, he moves into chapter 8 in verse 1. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. This is when, when you're reading through scripture, you go, okay, something important is about to come next. And it's with this in mind that I, I have to also take a step back and give you guys the caveat. Sometimes when we're approaching this, my goal is not to present to you like a doctoral dissertation or a complete systematic theology of reconciliation. Okay, sometimes I realize it, can, it could come across that way. But this is a real author writing a letter to an audience that is struggling. So he's not just making all these great theological points about Jesus is perfect, he's complete, he's eternal. And we kind of pick up that the author is really trying to hone in on where his audience is at as we move into chapter 8. And he just says, look, I'm telling you this because we have such a high priest, right? We've been talking about how Jesus is perfect, how Jesus is eternal. And right at that point where his audience is going, yeah, that, that would be great. You know, if you could prove that to me, that would be wonderful. The author now comes back and says, guys, but Jesus is also present. He is not only our eternal reconciliation, he is our present reconciliation. He says, look, I'm telling you about this Jesus because he is it and he is here. The author points out in verses 3 through 5, he says, look, I understand that you guys have struggled to see Jesus as this priest because he didn't look like what you were expecting, right? You were expecting somebody that was going to come and was going to go serve in the temple, and they were going to offer up sacrifices in the temple, and it was going to kind of fit into this Old Testament picture and understanding that you've seen. But he tells them Jesus didn't do that. Verse 5, he didn't offer up gifts or sacrifices like the earthly priests because they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And I, I can't for the life of me remember whether this was earlier in Hebrews or in one of the other books we were teaching on, but it uses this exact same phrase, speaking of what we were reading about in Exodus last year, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Right? He's saying, look, you, you're expecting Jesus to look this way because this is all you have known. But something better has come. And that something better is here, verse 5. And as we're kind of continuing to unpack this, I 
think we, we still wrestle with this today, church. Like, we still have a hard time. Whenever you hear somebody say, well, that sounds really good, Jordan. Like, I would love for that to be true. I mean, there are places in Scripture where we come to it and we're like, yeah, that, that would be great, but we just have no concept of what that would look like. We're not sure that's how that would work today or, well, that probably worked for them, but it doesn't work for us. I mean, the, the author is essentially telling his audience, look, don't let your idea of what God's reconciliation could look like be bound by this thing that I'm helping you see is just a picture of something greater to come. Right, like this thing that the audience is familiar with, it, it was good and it served its purpose for the season. But the author says there's something better that has now come. Don't read Jesus in light of just purely what the law could do and what you were expecting. Because it says, look, even the law, the best reconciliation they had at that time, that was just a copy and a shadow of something that was going to come later. That's why we get this powerful statement in verse 6, that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Man, the author's saying, look, this is the real deal. Right? Like, like everything you saw in the law, everything that we were working towards, this is the fulfillment of it. And he says, look, Jesus is right here. Right? Like I love, there's a lot of present tense language in these verses. You see verse 1, we have such a high priest. Right? Not we had. Jesus lived, he did it, but then he died, and that was the end of that. Not we had, not we will have. Oh, Jesus came and did some good stuff, and now it's up to us to just carry the torch in the meantime. Not we will have, we currently, right now, we have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne. Not was, then he gave it up or lost it when he you know, passed away, died on the cross, and then comes back. Not he lost it. Not we will have, not he will be seated, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We see he is a minister in the holy places. Not was, not will be, he is. That would have been powerful for the audience. Because they're saying, we feel like our faith is in the past tense. We put our faith in Jesus. Right, you guys told us all these stories about who he was. Some of this made sense, what we saw from the Old Testament. But he has died. He has passed on. The world around us doesn't look like they really cared so much about him. In fact, the early church, we've talked about a little bit. Every week, this church here is facing persecution from both the Jews and the Romans. Nobody knows what to do with them. They're saying, is this still worth it? The author says, not only is this an eternal reconciliation, something that you will have that will be cool later, it is present. It is something you have right now. And that still, though, leaves us with the question of, of why, right? So for this audience that knows the Old Testament system well, they're still kind of going, okay, say Jesus is all these things. What was so bad 
about the law? Like, what, what did the law not accomplish that Jesus is able to do? If he is eternal, if he is perfect, if he is present, why should we stick with him rather than going back to what we know? And the author in the last part of chapter 8 introduces a big shift, and we're going to get to the shift in a minute. We're going to kind of build to that point. But guys, I want you to hear as, as we get to that shift, I, we still struggle with this today. Okay, So it's not something the early church struggled with and we've perfectly resolved it. But really what the author gets at is that under the old covenant, what couldn't happen was we could not be brought into God's presence now and forever. That's what Jesus did. Because he's our eternal reconciliation, because he's our present reconciliation, he brings us into God's presence now and forever. He says in verses 8 and 9, here's the problem with the old covenant. And it's interesting because he doesn't really say it's the covenant's fault. Verse 9, this is not like the covenant I made with their fathers down a little bit, for they, speaking of Israel, they did not continue in my covenant. So the issue, more so, was how God's people approached it. The issue was that they did not continue in the covenant. That Greek verb for continue is honestly one of my favorites in the whole New Testament. It's the verb mano. It's the same one translated abide in John 15. It's this idea of making something your dwelling place, which is a beautiful picture of trust, honestly. Because if you're going to go purchase a home or rent a home, whatever you're going to choose to make as your home, I would hope that you trust that, you know, it can do some basic things for you. Like, hopefully it's going to provide you, uh, you know, shelter from the elements. Hopefully it's going to provide a space for you and your family to, you know, keep your stuff, but then invite people over to. Like, if you're going to live in something, you have to trust it a lot. That's the picture that we are seeing here. Essentially that Israel did not trust the covenant that God had given him. And that is why God had to bring a new one. And guys, this is, this is the same undercurrent we, we saw in Exodus, we saw in Ephesians, we saw in Malachi. Like It's the same thing that keeps coming up that God has said, look, where our brokenness and where our sin comes from at its core is a lack of trust, right? That God has said that, here, here's who I am. Here's the way that I have made life in my image. And when we don't trust that, we go looking for life in other places. And that's where we are led into sin. Scripture tells us that then also leads us out of God's image, which would be into death. So it's the same picture all throughout Scripture. We did not trust so the law showed that God was looking for us to trust his reconciliation work, trust he knows his image, us made in his image well enough to say, okay, if I'm making all things right with me, here's how we're going to go about doing this. So what does God do differently in this new covenant? Right, if the law showed us we needed to trust, but we didn't, what is God doing differently in the new one? It says verse 10, I will put my laws into their hearts. Other way around. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This Old Testament covenant, which I love, this is why we spent so much time in Exodus, it was very vivid in its imagery. It had all these beautiful garments 
all these ornate altars, these beautiful curtains of the temple. Like all this stuff was pictures of what was actually taking place. But the, uh, God now says, look, I, I'm going to remove that because I'm not going to give you a picture of something that's taking place. I'm going to give you the actual thing itself now here in Jesus. The author is saying, look, Jesus is fulfilling what God is saying. It's not something that's going to come later. It is here today. Right? Jesus tells us back in John 15, right after he calls us to abide in him, that those who abide in him would receive the spirit who would then glorify God inside of them and guide them into the truth of who God is after Jesus left. The author saying, you have this promise. Right? Like, if you have the spirit dwelling in you, you have this promise now. The law is in your mind. It has been written on your heart. And God says, as I do this, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Before we move on from that piece there, guys, we really have to understand, we bring a lot of cultural reading into when it talks in the New Testament about what it means to be God's people. The same cultural baggage, I believe, that the Jews would have read into this, okay? The order, when God shows up and says, I will be their God and they shall be my people, is intentional. Right? God says, if you're going to be my people, first off, I have to make a way for that to be possible, so there's something about what it means to be the people of God that God has made a way for us to become his people. And he kind of shows us here in verse 11, the response is knowing him. Like what he is after. In order for someone to be considered in his people, God says, you have to know me. And we, you're even told in verse 11, the knowledge doesn't bring any status with it. It doesn't bring any, oh, once you know this, then you can, you know, progress to a different level. It says they, they shall not teach each one his number, neighbor because they will all know me. Under the law, what we're seeing here from verses, essentially this is 8 through 12, right? To be God's people was to be people of the law. So think about the picture we see in the Old Testament, right? You have a nation, Israel. They're chosen as God's people. And God says, in order for you to remain my people, you have to keep my covenant, keep my commands. And I have chosen you, Israel, to be my people, to live out my morality, my moral law in front of all the other nations so that they know who God is. This is the picture that we get of the Old Testament, people of the law. But God has said something has changed now in Christ. To be the people of God now under Christ is no longer tied to having to have the physical nation that's living out the moral law for the whole world to get to see. God says something has changed in Christ. What is different? Well, now I will put my laws into their minds and write them on my hearts. The display, being the physical nation that's chosen with the law, that's disappeared. Because now the law has been replaced with a person. 
that God has now moved his reconciliation away from the law and now into the person himself of Christ. And guys, this, this switch, I mean, we could, we could spend a whole sermon on here, but we're not going to today, okay? So just bear with me. I know that there's a lot to unpack in here, but the switch from seeing God's people as being a nation under the law to now being a body of people who are living out his heart, from being people of the law to being people of Christ, this was a switch that here we are, decades after Jesus' death, people are still wrestling with this. They're still not quite sure what does this look like. If you remember your New Testament, you saw some, some in the Jewish tradition just flat out refused to accept that that's the case, right? Most notably, we see that in the Pharisees, right? They liked the status of being the favored people on the earth. They themselves were kind of the ruling class. So they're essentially the rulers of the chosen people that are carrying out this moral law for the world to see, right? They liked their position. So much so that when God shows up and says, I'm looking for something different now, they go to the point of killing Christ in the name of preserving their godly nation. Others, like the early church, they struggled, like we're seeing here in times of persecution. Like, the whole book of Hebrews is a people that's trying to go back to being people of the law. And the author is saying, every single week as we're reading these chapters, guys, don't go back. Guys, this thing here is worth it. Guys, please do not go back. He knows Look, when we're pressed, and, and this is not, this is not as, a, as a shame on us thing, but when things get really hard, we go back to what we know, right? That's, that's just who we are. We go back to whatever is easiest. Just like we said last week, it's easy for us to rally to fight for a cause than to stand united in God's peace in his righteousness. The author of Hebrews knows, look, when you guys are being pressed, it is way easier to measure and to tell whether you're holding to the tenets of a law rather than are you living out the image of someone. And I, I feel this at times as your pastor whenever we're talking about being made in the image of God and that we're striving to work towards it, I always feel a sense of, I wish I could be more concrete. And I could just tell you, look, if we just did these three things right here, we would, we'd be perfect, right? We would have the image of God in a nutshell. We'd be great because it is easier to be people of the law than to be people of the image. But why the shift is necessary, the author leaves us with two final thoughts in verse 12 and verse 13. The author says it is this shift from being under the law to being under the image that will bring us into God's presence. It brings us into a better promise. God promises, verse 12, I will be merciful. This is all in the context of this new covenant coming from verse 10. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Something the law could not do eternally, could not do presently, but Jesus can. And even perhaps 
more important in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And I love the author of Hebrews knows his audience well enough that this is not the first thing he throws out at him. He doesn't say, look, this former system that you're used to, this way of life that you want, it's obsolete, right? Now, for some of us, if you started there, you wouldn't want to hear anything else after that point, right? To be told that what you wanted to cling to is, in verse 13, obsolete, growing old, ready to vanish away. That's not going to sit well. Of course, the author hasn't really spared some punches. We read last week, I think is in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. Verse 18, it was weak, it was useless. So he's already kind of tipped his hand a little bit with where what Jesus has done. But guys, since Hebrews 4, when Daryl was preaching on how Jesus is greater than the condition of our hearts, I mean, the past five, six well, however many chapters we are, four, where we've been seeing how being people of the law didn't accomplish what God was after. It didn't bring us into God's righteousness. It didn't bring us into his peace. It didn't mature us in our faith. It didn't sympathize with our weakness. It didn't intercede for us. It could not. Because God has brought us something better. The law pointed to a better promise, which is Jesus. So as we close this morning, I think let's spend just a moment on each one of these pieces, what that means for us, right? If we consider how Jesus is our eternal reconciliation. If you're like me, you, I wrestle with this whenever I feel like I have to step in because God's not doing something I feel like he should be doing. That's very common. Um, especially if you're more of a achiever by nature. You want to step in and make sure things are running, things are working, things are getting done. Um, when you don't see God doing it, it's very hard to just sit back. And then I come here and I read this, this section of scripture this whole week, and I'm, I'm seeing over and over again Christ is eternal, Christ is complete, Christ is perfect, and I just, I got to the point this week, guys, where I just realized, then, then what could I add to that? Like, if the work that God tells me he has done in his son is eternal, is complete, is perfect, I don't know what you can add to that. So maybe for me, then the life of faith is less about what I could add to it, what I could do for it, and more about letting this eternal work be done in me or helping others let it be done in them. And I, I, I say this to say, look, we, we have, kind of as Abigail was leading to, we have a, a beautiful diversity in our walks of faith in our church. Right, we got people who have been in church for 20 years. We got people who have just started to come back for the first time, like we got a broad range of maturity, we got a broad range of uh, where we're at, and if Christ is doing an eternal work in us, then please hear me, you, we do not need to be comparing 
the knowledge or how much we know or how much we're able to do as a way of saying whether we're actually being made right in God. Because all of these steps that we are learning to take, that is part of an eternal work. And it's a big deal. I think about this when, um, whenever our kids learn a special skill. If, if you want to, I don't know if Charlie will tell you because she gets shy sometimes. But she is really proud of what she calls her jacket flip. That she'll lay it on the floor with the hood facing her and she'll stick her hands in the sleeves and then she'll flip it on. So she knows how to put her jacket on by herself. Right? Jefferson has now finally, thankfully figured out that the little hooks on the side of his boots are so he can pull them up onto his feet himself. So now Jefferson knows how to at least put on one pair of shoes. Right? It's very easy and as an adult to be like, well, duh. Like, you should know how to put on your shoes. You should know how to, like, that's just part of growing up. You learn these things. But the joy that they have in actually figuring out and being like, wait a minute. Like, I got this down. And then the fact that they want to show everybody else how they've got it down. Like, to stand there and be like, well, you, you should have known how to do that completely misses the fact that, you know, like, if these are all eternal steps, like, pieces of growing into the image of God that we're just learning and figuring out different ways of how he's made us, we celebrate that, right? We're like, yeah, that is the coolest jacket flip. And you have that same reaction the 30th time you see it as on the first. So I would encourage you today, guys, we feel the tension of wanting to step in and do something if we don't see God at work. But sometimes we're just missing the small things he is doing in us every day day. It is not wrong for us to call that out and to celebrate them. And in the same vein, we're also seeing today Jesus is a present reconciliation. And I realized, again, it just, it keeps, Hebrews just keeps kicking my tail every week. But I've realized how much I think about faith, not in terms of present, but in terms of either the past or the future. Like I'm constantly saying things like, well, I used to see God doing things like this, or I talk about my faith as oh, I, I went to church, I was baptized, I came to know Christ. Like all these things that happened in the past. Or I think about it in context of the future, right? Like, man, I just don't like where that thing is headed. I got to step in and change that. Jesus, could you just, like I know you said you're coming at some point. Could you please just come back now? Because in the present, we feel tension. We can always look back on the past and say, man, this side of the past, that looks way better than I remember it. We can always look at the future and say, man, that does not look as good as I hope it does. And both of those things cause us tension in the present. What do I do to recapture the past? What do I do to change the future? And, and Hebrews says, look, we get that you feel that tension. You should. But Jesus is not providing just a past or just a future reconciliation. He provides a present one. And then I'm constantly going, okay, Lord, I'm feeling this tension. This is okay. This is okay. So consider today, where do we want to work? Because we feel God is not there, right? Either in the sense of we saw him at work and now we don't. So we feel the tension. Or God, we wish you were at work. You promised you would do that. Why not now? Either direction. Where do we want to work because we feel God is not there? Because maybe today we need to trust, no, the reconciliation we have in Christ is a present 
one. The last piece, that Jesus brings us into God's presence now and forever. It's very natural for us to be people of the law. Uh, when you're striving for something, when you're facing hardship, it's just easier. And I know when we, you know, whenever we talk about our mission and our vision and, and things that we'll get to share with people in the, the new members class later, it's, it's always easier to say we want to just see these things happen. We want to achieve these things. Not that you don't set goals or don't have ambitions or don't have targets, right? Those things help us live for sure. But when Jesus comes along with a better promise and a better covenant, we have to remember he is after us being people of his image more than just being people of the law. So I would encourage you guys to just simply ask this week, where is my heart in this? You know, do I tend to, to pat myself on the back or beat myself up when I struggle to keep the commandments, to do the correct things? Am I able to be gracious to myself to say, okay, God, I, I understand how I was wrong here and I want to get better in this as we move forwards? I think another good question to help us see where is our heart in this is how do we interact or how do we feel toward others who don't share the same necessarily the same morality as we do, right? If our goal is to just get, again, to get to the right law, God has said a better covenant exists. But we are also seeing in here, look, God says, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will know me. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. So maybe we do need to trust that if Jesus is all these things and if we are in God's presence, striving to keep his image, we will keep his word. So in our wrestling, wherever you are at with any one of these today, guys, let's pray. We say, creator and redeemer God, author of all existence, source of all blessedness, I adore thee for making me capable of knowing thee, for giving me reason and conscience, for giving or leading me to desire thee. I praise thee for the revelation of thyself in the gospel, for thy heart as a dwelling place of pity, for thy thoughts of peace towards me, for thy patience and thy graciousness, for the vastness of thy mercy, Lord, I praise thee. Thou hast moved my conscience to know how the guilty can be pardoned, how the unholy can be sanctified, how the poor can be enriched. May I be always among those who not only hear thee, but know thee, who walk with thee and rejoice in thee, who take thee at thy word and find life there. 
Keep me always longing for a present salvation and Holy Spirit comforts and rejoicings. Keep me always longing for spiritual graces and blessings. Keep me longing, Lord, for help to value my duties as well as my privileges. May I cherish simplicity and godly sincerity of character. Help me to be in the reality before thee as in appearance I am before men. To be religious before I profess religion, to leave the world before I enter the church, to set my affections on things above, to shun forbidden follies and vanities, to be a dispenser God of grace as well as a partaker of your grace, to be prepared to bear evil as well as to do good. Oh God, make me worthy of this calling that the name of Jesus may be glorified in me and I in him. We are grateful, Lord, for what you have done in your son. And we do not claim to fully be able to wrap our minds around it today. But God, we are grateful that you are present with us now. That you are making us right with you now and for eternity. God, it is a blessing to be in your presence in this place with these people today. And may we stay in that as we go. In your name we pray.